0: Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The Countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. This week, we are talking about Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21. This came in at rank number 68 in the Countdown, and as always, we've got a different host each week. This time, we have a first-time host in Amanda Westville. Welcome aboard, Amanda. Welcome, blind. <laughs> Okay, so as listeners know, the hosts come from various sources. A lot of them are hosts of other podcasts. Some of them come from the Horizon Labs, Facebook, and Twitter groups. Some from the I Like Pink Lois Very Much group for the listeners of the I yeah! Podcast. podcast. When it comes to discussing the uh, annual in which Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson get married the week of Valentine's Day, for my guest host, I invited my girlfriend. So technical details on this issue. It is just the one annual. For the story, it was plotted by Jim Shooter and scripted by David Michelinie, penciled by Paul Ryan, inked by Vince Coletta, colored by Bob Sharon, lettered by Rick Parker, and the editor of the issue itself was Jim Salikrup. Editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter, who also laid out the plots. The cover date is 1987. The annuals didn't have months on their cover dates. It was released on or about September 6th, 1987, and as you've already said, it came in at spot number 68 in the tournament. So we've already alluded to it. One of the things that we like to look at with each issue is if it had any significance for continuity, first appearances, things like that. This one is, as we said, The Wedding of Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, and Mary Jane Watson. Story's titled The Wedding. We'll do our quick plot synopsis and then talk about the impact the story had on the industry, how we were personally exposed to it for the first time, and if it has any deeper meanings, why we think it landed where it did in the tournament.
1: This is one of the ones that my grandma got from that guy that the the depot with the cover ripped off.
0: Okay. <laughs> There were a lot of those in these days. <laughs> yes, a, a lot of people collected comics with the covers ripped off, and that's because the way that the publishing worked at the time, that's how they were returnable. The unsold stock, you just had to cut the cover off and ship it back to the publisher as a, a sign that it was destroyed and get a full refund on the product. So a lot of, so we say, unscrupulous business people just decided to cut the covers off, get the refund, and sell the product anyway. Recycling Depot would be a little bit different.
1: Yeah, he's not financially gaining.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure the creators would have been okay with someone saying, you know, this was unsold, it was sent for destruction, but we gave it to a kid we know instead. So it starts off with Peter Parker in the his second black mm-hmm. costume. This is not the alien symbiote that becomes Venom. This is the cloth black costume that he made after the fact, because the symbiote was, hadn't been
1: Venom. Yeah, I was wondering about that, actually.
0: Yeah, this one is cloth, because we'll talk about it in more detail with Secret Wars. That month where he got it in Secret Wars was the month where in the Spider-Man books you find out he's evil and trying to take him over, and he manages to split it off. But he liked the look, so he made a cloth version, and then it was after this issue came out that it eventually bonded with Eddie Brock and became Venom. But it starts off with Spider-Man swinging through the streets, stops to end a quick robbery, which was Electro versus the police. Takes them down in classic Spider-Man fashion, saves some people on the streets. As was the custom with the annual, you get a quick breakdown of who the characters are and how they relate, in case this is your first exposure to the character. Because in 1987, the annuals hadn't gone to the big events yet, so the annual was meant to be a possible jumping-on point and a major story. So, following that, averted bank robbery, we see Peter and MJ back in their apartment, doing all the pre-wedding prep. Peter's got some jitters, but everyone he's talking to about it, Jill Robinson... Or Robbie Robinson, his real name is Joseph, but everyone calls him Robbie. J. Jonah Jameson and the rest of the people at the Bugle, he gets a lot of support now. And they end up throwing a surprise party. And, of course, it's classic J. Jonah Jameson style. He's telling Miss Hodgkins, remember the name of every person who was here. He'd hate to (laughs) dock someone who didn't attend. You know, that's Jonah.
1: Yeah, I like it, how he wants to save Ace, but yeah. then still Dr.
0: Payne. Yeah, he's a total skinflint, but he's also a politician, which is why, mm-hmm. well, Amanda's read a lot of comics, but she's been out for a while. So there's a few things that are, she's probably going to be learning about for the first time, such as, um, up until very recently, J. Joe Jameson was not writing the Daily Bugle anymore. He was mayor of New York. God. Yeah, Spider-Man was on a story that took <laughs> him up, you know, up to a parallel dimension for a couple months, and he comes back, and Jane Jones Jameson had entered the race and won. So we get a lot more interaction with Peter and MJ, including one thing that's a very common trope in Spider-Man that drives me up the wall. Peter, when he's giving MJ the ring, he's hanging off the tile to drop ceiling. You can see the rectangular panels in the ceiling. I get that he's adhesive to stuff, and I totally buy that. If anyone has ever had to lift one of those panels out of the drop ceiling, you know how flimsy they are? <laughs> I have no idea how these things consistently support his weight. They should be sticking to one and then just falling with bits of ceiling still attached to the parts of his body that he was hanging from. They have their little romantic dinner while others keep phoning MJ and trying to say, No, no, don't marry him. Marry me. And she's doing sort of her model persona where she's staying a little bit flirty, a little bit party girl, but not leading them on. Just, you know, hey, I'd like you as a friend and let's hang out as friends, including... Getting a message from one of them named Bruce, who's got her in a sports car, checking the glove box, tickets for Paris, come see me, you can keep the Ferrari, I've got another one, all of that. Meanwhile, Peter goes back and talks to Aunt May, we get a flashback of his origin story with the burglar that killed his Uncle Ben.
1: Now that I'm older, I was not okay with Mary Jane going to go see that guy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. it does.
1: (laughs) Now that I'm older, it rubbed me the wrong way.
0: The way it's set up, it seems to be designed to increase tension to make you wonder if Peter's wife is going to leave him. And she doesn't leave him at this point, although I get why there's tension because that's – I was planning on getting into this with the personal story. I think this annual reads a lot better in isolation than you're reading in its seats. Because Peter and MJ had actually broken up months before this and got together for the sake of getting married again on relatively short notice. The way it played out, Stan Lee was still writing the Daily Newspaper Strip at the time. And when Stan Lee was writing, Peter and MJ never broke up. Mm-hmm. And in, in the Newspaper Strip, they were getting married. And editor-in-chief Jim Shooter figured that Newspaper Strip has a lot of readers. It would be nice if the general status quo they see in the Newspaper Strip is the same as in the comics. So Peter and MJ need to be married. So in the comics, Spider-Man and Mary Jane had been broken up for about a year and a half. The issue that came out before this annual starts with Peter just kind of going on the rooftops going, you know, I've been a little depressed. There's something off. There's something missing in my life. I know. I should get married. I'll go propose to Mary Jane. So he goes to her and talks to her for the first time since they broke up, proposes, and she accepts. And then he goes off to fight a supervillain. And then we have this annual.
1: (sighs) like comic
0: Yeah, it, it seemed to hit very, very quickly, especially compared to, say, Reed and Sue Richards, who, when the first issue of Fantastic Four hit, they were they were described as engaged. Later on, we see him formally propose, So it looks like they weren't officially engaged, but everyone knew that that's where they were heading. It took about four years before they finally got married in annual number three. Anyway, back to the story. Peter's visit with May, as we said, recap of the origin. Then Mary Jane and Hannah Watson show up, and they spend some time together. <clears throat> And, again, Bruce shows up. Now, this is where MJ is being a little too flirty, for my case. You know, when Bruce is saying, Sweet cakes, I have not yet begun to talk. And she says, Go ahead, handsome, it's your dime. You know, did she really need to call him handsome there? She could just say, Go ahead, it's your dime. Again, it seemed like a false sense of tension to see whether or not they're actually going to get married. Yeah. And then Peter faces the ceilings without destroying them yet again. He takes her up to the top of the Empire State Building. They swing around and, you know, see the Brooklyn Bridge where Gwen died, which is... We'll talk about the death of Gwen Stacy later. It's actually number one in this ranking.
1: I think it's kind of weird for her to take her to the bridge to go look at where Gwen died. It's really morbid. That'd be like if I I was married and my husband died, and then I brought you to go hang out at his gravesite. Yeah.
0: (laughs) In this case, at least Mary Jane and Gwen were good friends before this, but it's still. I
1: think it would have made more sense if they had just him. In that scene, I said, "Bring her."
0: Yeah, especially since the reason that she broke up with him these months be- or months before it was because of his life as Spider-Man. She knew he was Spider-Man when they started going out, but she was not okay with the idea of him going out there risking his neck and her worrying about his life every time he walked out the door. Mm-hmm. And this would just serve as a reminder that he's not the only one at risk, which would seem to just exaggerate the issues that have not been dealt with that led her to breaking up with him in the first place. And anyway, Peter goes to visit everyone. It's really a who's who of the classic cast that are still here. So we've seen everyone at the daily bugle We've seen their friends he comes to visit flash thompson who's no longer his bully they've kind of got things sorted out goes to visit harry osborne who's not dead yet mary jane gets a pretty elaborate bachelorette party
1: i love the uh <clears throat> comrade Howard. it seems that her self-worth is that she's gonna be so beautiful for him
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah some people credit jim lee's art with turning mj mm-hmm. into the supermodel that was already going on mm-hmm. she was the party girl I do enjoy Peter's mm. nightmare dream sequence of the wedding, where, you know, it's all sorts of costumed heroes and villains and saying, well, no, it's, you know, dearly beloved, we are gathered here to take snaps of Peter, of Spider-Man getting married, the Daily Bugle will pay a fortune for them. That's insane. It's the American way. Die. And when you look at the the wedding itself, when you get the two halves of the room, instead of like the bride side and the groom side, it's costumed heroes, costumed villains. So we see Craven, mm. the lizard, Hobgoblin. Thor, Uncle Ben could make it. Again, torturing him about the possibilities and the threats. And And there is some justification for this, because I cannot think of a single wedding in the Marvel Universe where something didn't go down. I think the closest was Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, because the attack didn't happen at the wedding, it just happened to coincide with the day of the wedding. (laughs) And they managed to sort it out in time for the wedding to go off as planned. Uh, We get more visits to MJ from Bruce. We get Peter going back to the bridge alone to think about Gwen's death. Bruce ends up dropping MJ off at the wedding late, although Peter is more late. They do get married and you get the nice I now pronounce you husband and wife in a very unusual wedding where the entire wedding party seems to pile up right behind the bride and groom. So we've got, you know, Aunt May, Flash Thompson, Harry, Betty Brandt, Jill Robertson, J. Jonah Jameson with a tear in his eye, Anna Watson, you know, a few other supporting characters. All oh, there for that nice splash page. And, yeah, from there, it goes to the honeymoon. MJ has taken those tickets to Paris and the villa, and that's now their honeymoon spot. So all this was like a a Three's Company-style misunderstanding and misdirection in terms of what was going on between her and Bruce to Sunday.
1: No. I know that Bruce wanted to hook up with MJ. (laughs) A, a so lot it's weird it. that he gives her the tickets when he wanted MJ to leave Peter. For him. Yeah, and I can I can actually identify with that kind of <laughs> situation. Just a little,
0: <laughs> yeah. But no, Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> Bruce's role was in no way ambiguous. It was just MJ's side of it was the one that seemed like they delivered us direction. Mm. Although I don't know if it comes across as better that she being flirty and maybe not marrying the, the guy that she suddenly agreed to marry or potentially manipulating someone else to get a free high-end honeymoon.
1: Yeah, either way, it's not him. good. Because I, w- I wouldn't go hang, if I was about to get married, I wouldn't go hang out with the guy who's trying to break up my marriage or a potential future marriage.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's not a, a class act. I said it was, it was a sense of you know, sort of false tension. Which can happen, cause this, as we said at first, this was plotted by Jim Shooter. Mm-hmm. Now, a little bit of background on Jim Shooter for those who don't know. Yeah, he was the editor-in-chief of Marvel at this time. He was one of the youngest writers of comics. In the 50s, uh, a psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham put out The Seduction of the Innocent, essentially blaming comics for all the evils of the day's youth. And there's, you know, different reactions from different people comic publishers had to go very, very conservative. And one of the ways that they dealt with it to make sure it was appropriate for seven and eight-year-olds was by soliciting cover ideas from seven eight-year-olds. So this young readership could say the cover should be like this. And then the Superman editor would take it to his team and say, okay, here's your cover, write a story around it, which is why you've got all that Superman is a jerk or other such terms websites out there showing these nasty covers. Because uh-huh. they were seven and eight-year-olds thinking think this would be cool. <laughs> and it was all some elaborate prank or lesson that they were being taught. To get it all in line, Jim Shooter not only sent in cover ideas, he sent in fully penciled covers that were published as is. So he was a very capable artist, and he was a writer. So he actually started writing and drawing comics professionally at about age 12. And the Superman editor, who I believe was Mort Weisinger, he kind of took him under his wing as much to control him as to educate and groom him. Mm -hmm. So... Jim Shooter is kind of like the child star who led a very sheltered life. And he's written some very good superhero comics. I find a lot of his relationship story arcs are seriously wanting and kind of messed up. And I think that's just because he kind of had that young superstar status and never really related to people his age. I just don't think he understands the way those relationships are really supposed to work. And that lack of personal understanding shows up in the pages, as we're seeing with the way MJ is being handled here. So that that's just my take on it.
1: Also, I don't think he could hold her by that head. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, the way Peter is carrying MJ through the threshold. Well, his his arm is adhesive, and he does have the proportionate strength of the spider.
1: Her dress would just come off.
0: Yeah. Well, the next panel. Something
1: different, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she does go from pink with a collar to two tones of green without the collar. So, and the dialogue between that is. In the first panel where he's carrying her, it's, mm, I always dreamed of being carried over the threshold, but with one hand, that's class. And then cut to doing other, or course doing other newlywed things, like unpacking and thinking about what to fix for dinner, are going to be some sort of mundane after that honeymoon we had. Wow, what an adventure. So the time lapse between here is actually Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number no. 7, which shows their honeymoon, which I don't, I don't know if I have access to it. It might be one of the essentials I haven't gotten around to reading yet.
1: Yeah, I've never read it. All
0: right, so into the personal stories. So were you just first exposed to the story growing up as one of those recycled ones?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there was this one, that Blade comic book I told you about. I want to say like Darkhold Pages or something. I can't remember what it was called. Other than the recycled depot, it was only X Men and Marvel cards. That's all I cared about was X Men.
0: <laughs> Which is why we'll be hearing about hearing from her later in <laughs> one of the larger X Men stores. My first exposure to this was actually in the GitCorp DVD-ROM, because the CD-ROM didn't include the annuals when it was a multi-set CD, and that's how I originally read every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, was going to the cd roms So then I read the annual when the DVD came out, and I upgraded, so I read the annual in isolation. Having read the comics, where it goes from Peter going, I know, I'm going to propose to that girl who dumped me a year and a half ago, and see if she'll say yes, and she does, and then the next issue they're already married, and it says, see the annual, that story.
1: I did watch the the cartoon all the time as a kid, The, the old, old. Spider spiderman cartoon yeah the
0: 1967 one
1: yeah okay with the awesome intro music
0: yeah paul francis webster
1: yeah me and my siblings used to sing it all
0: up. yeah yeah so did this story have any personal meaning for you is it
1: it's a lot different from reading it as a kid to reading it from now because i think as a kid i just saw it, it as romantic like yay Spider-Man's getting married and then now as an adult i'm like mary jane you whore <laughs> get away from that corvette <laughs> <laughs> and that bad rich man <laughs> trying to break up your marriage.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's... See, I, the first time I read it, I would have already been in my 20s. Maybe my 30s. I don't remember exactly when it came out, it was around there. That, I think on it was 87 DVD. or 89. Yeah, this came out in 87 when I first read it in the Git DVD-ROM. So that would have come out in, in uh, 2007. So it would have been close to 30 when I read it the first time. And it's Jim Shooter writing MJ in here or writing the female leads in pretty much any other romantic lot line has always rubbed me wrong.
1: Yeah. See, I would have been like eight. <laughs> so, yeah, I was... I would have read it when it came
0: out-ish. Yeah, and yeah, it came out the day before my 10th birthday. Yeah. So, all right. So, are there any deeper meanings that you would find here, as they would have in Mission Log? Or Mission Log is a Star Trek podcast. Are there any... Which I
1: haven't listened to okay. at all. So are there I'm any... watching the Star Trek <laughs> with you.
0: <laughs> and So, are there, are there any morals, messages, or meanings? Does this seem to have a, like a moral to the story?
1: Now it makes sense why it feels so rushed, because you were saying that they changed it from a breakup, because I would have expected it to last longer, just like the Gabbit and the Rogue miniseries that they did, or they did four comics for each to go through a mini story arc, so it was kind of weird they jammed it all into one comic book.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does seem a little odd, and it's, I mean, yeah, for the messages, I don't know, because it's, the only messages I'm seeing are not... Most of them are, you know, in regards to MJ, are not healthy messages.
1: Mm-hmm. It almost feels like the different things that they're bringing up feel really discombobulated, almost like as if there was multiple writers and they just kind of glued everything together.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean, there was the Jim Shooter editor-in-chief, and this was close to the end of Shooter's time. Hmm. It was shortly before DeFalco took over, and one of the things I found about the late end of Jim Shooter's era as editor-in-chief, as also the late end of Tom DeFalco's era as editor-in-chief, when they're writing their own stuff, there's nobody that can say no. I mean, if you look at Jim Shooter around this era, this is around the time of Secret Wars 2 which is widely regarded as a mess. And a lot of those because Jim Shooter was not only writing the nine-issue miniseries, he was rewriting the tie-in comics that everybody else was forced to write to fit his views of exactly who the Beyonder is. So the Beyonder is treated consistently throughout that entire thing, because he's rewritten everyone else. But everyone else is all over the map and not necessarily consistent with the way they've been written in the months before that, because Jim Shooter was writing them too, to show off the Beyonder, who he wanted to be a major player, essentially forever. Yeah. Which didn't quite work out that way. That's- Secret Wars 2 is remembered straight- Strongly enough that there have been at least three different versions of Secret Wars 3. Because <laughs> <laughs> nobody remembers that someone else already did it.
1: I so. do want to read the annual seven year about their honeymoon, though, because I have no idea what happened.
0: Well, they released... Unless
1: enough- I read it and I'm upset again.
0: There are at least enough versions of the Spectacular Spider-Man uh, Essential volumes that I probably haven't haven't gotten to it yet, so we could do that. Yeah, in terms of why we think it landed at this point in the tournament, or in the countdown, keep calling it a tournament because of Euro42's other podcasts... Why it landed at 68, I don't know, I'll let Amanda go first with her thoughts, because I've got some thoughts that involve storylines that you probably haven't heard of yet either. Kind of want your reaction live on the air. Yeah.
1: I would have put it lower. I didn't think it was that great. I don't even know if I would have put it on the list. Because it could have been written so much better and put together so much better. So I I feel like it's on the list just because he got married.
0: Yeah. There's a bunch of wedding issues in Marvel history that didn't land on the list. This is the one that got represented. Uh We don't have Reed and Sue's wedding, which to me is... Bedlam and the Baxter Building is still my favorite wedding issue. We don't have X-Men 30 where Cyclops and Jean Grey finally get married. We don't have a lot of the other ones. I think one of the reasons this landed on it, part of it is the continuity significance that Peter Parker got married, and part of it is a reaction to One More Day. So this is the storyline Amanda probably hasn't heard about. Uh, coming out of the Civil War, so this storyline would have been published around 2007, 2008, somewhere in that neighborhood, we had Joe Quesada as the other chief in Marvel, and he had three major goals for Marvel Comics. Now, two of those goals will be discussed in more detail when we get to the storylines that did it, namely Civil War and House of M. His third goal was to make Peter Parker single again and free things up. And there had been debates for a long time in editorial about how to do that. Because they agreed that having him married to MJ restricted the stories. They couldn't have the love triangles. There was a lot of debate about how to do it. One of the ideas they threw at was having Peter and MJ get a divorce, but they thought, no, they want to keep Peter as one of the younger heroes, mm-hmm. so let's not age him by having to get a divorce. Let's not put him through the trauma of making him a widow. So that's why, for years, the Marvel editorial offices were stuck trying to figure out a way to undo the story that didn't make Peter Parker seem older or hard to identify with. So, as J. Michael Straczynski's last story arc, and it was a four-part issue where he tried to have his name taken off the fourth issue because it had changed so much from his original plan. Joe Quesada's idea was, well, the have some Something go on so the way never happened. During Civil War, Spider-Man revealed himself as Peter Parker to the world and no longer had a secret identity. As a result, people started attacking the people close to him, and his Aunt May was mortally wounded. And in order to undo that, they made a deal with Mephisto, who was created as essentially the devil. And he offered them a deal. He said, they've got one of the most perfect loves in history, even though they had broken up a number of times. <laughs> but apparently this is such a perfect love that Mephisto said, yeah, he'll save me if he takes that love. And so they make that deal. And taking that love seems to constitute going back and re-editing history. So Peter missed the wedding because he fought a guy and was unconscious. And then he and MJ stayed together through all that time. They just never got married. And it was one of the least well-received Spider-Man stories in a long time. <laughs> with major continuity resets. It led to Brand New Day. And Brand- I, I
1: don't you know. think there's any basis for saying it's one of the greatest love. I don't think just taking back their marriage is worth a whole lot.
0: <laughs> no, it's I, I firmly <laughs> believe that Straczynski's original plan was to do something involving Loki instead of Mephisto Mm. because Loki had shown up earlier in his run and Spider-Man helped him out and it left with Loki giving him a token to summon him because Loki owed him a favor. And I could see, going back through the history of the comics, Spider-Man and MJ originally started dating after she figured out Peter Parker was Spider-Man. So I could have seen it if, you know, Peter went to Loki and said, okay, make it so nobody ever knew my secret identity, thinking that would save May's life. Mm -hmm. Not realizing that if Loki did that and the God of Mischief would be totally on board with doing this because of this side effect... That MJ would not have known he was Spider-Man, she would not have the deeper understanding of him, and would not have fallen in love with him, and that would have undone the marriage. Would have changed a lot more of historical continuity as far as Marvel's concerned. But that I think would have been in character, rather than the devil shows up and says, "Hey, I'll save your aunt if you give me your marriage," <laughs> but you both have to agree to it, and MJ and Peter both agree to it. MJ, we later learn, she whispers in Mephisto's ear. Read. it takes a long time before we find out what she whispered. She put an extra caveat on it, saying, "Okay, I'll go along with this on the condition that you leave Peter alone for the rest." of his life. Mm. But I don't see Peter Parker making a deal with the devil for personal gain, period. That just, that struck me as out of character. So I suspect part of the reason that this wedding issue made the list when so many other wedding issues didn't is because people are now putting this issue on a taller pedestal than it belongs on <laughs> as a means of bashing one more day. That's my hush. I think that about wraps it up in one of the shorter podcasts in this series. Do you have any closing thoughts, Amanda? Or- yeah,
1: I no, felt The whole thing was out of
0: character. I just...
1: It doesn't belong on the list.
0: No, uh, it's to be perfectly to frank.
1: And I like the Spider-Man cartoon. I love this Spider-Man cartoon. I watched it all the time. And it, yeah, it doesn't fit with, even if I compare it to any of the other Spider-Man comic books that I did get from the Recycling Depot guy. <laughs> it doesn't fit none of the, of how he's acting and, and how Mary Jane's acting. Because I like that. Did you see the one where he gets her to quit smoke? Because that's one of the things that's so good about Spider-Man that He's like an actual real guy. So I liked the comics where they had him do real things or deal with real life situations. Because one of the things that Stanley was so great about was bringing up the issue of racism but you know instead it's mutants like bringing up in a different way because then more people listen to it instead of immediately shutting down and same as like mary jane quitting smoking right if they had done it in a different format people just would have been like eh, because i laughed so hard when because i think spite i think peter parker's comment to her was that she tasted like an ashtray (laughs) comment he wanted her to quit yeah
0: there's Forget the top 75 Marvel stories of every of all time. I wouldn't put this on my list of top 75 Spider-Man stories. I mean, there. So I think, honestly, I think the only reason it's here is because people are saying, y- you messed it up with one more day. We want the marriage back. So that wraps up, I think, everything we have to say about Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21. Join us again next week when we discuss X-Factor 87. If you're reading along at home, that one was reprinted in X-Factor Visionaries Peter David Volume 4, in Marvel Digital Unlimited, and on Comixology. So feel free to review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. If you know someone who you think would be interested in it, send them a pointer to it. So Amanda, thank you for joining us. You're
2: welcome. And listeners, thank you for listening. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. Twelve months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate twelve months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner, Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest-starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy,
0: we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in, and here's the hosts! This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work... Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie
2: without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners,
0: and you're invited too.
2: Even Liz Allen?
0: Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen.
2: Okay, as long as Ned can come.
0: You know why I hate you leads? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones.
2: Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at amazingspiderman.lipson.com.